Radio. Good evening and welcome to the local edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. Coming up in the second half of the program, we'll be uh, taking a look at a mental health bill. But first, we're going to start with, with some news. Some news about the news here and how we're reporting the news because starting tonight we have a new news partner on Radio Catskill. Help us uh, bring you news and information, keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. And this partner is Spotlight PA. Spotlight PA is a nonpartisan, statewide, member funded newsroom based in Harrisburg. And their mission is, quote, holding the powerful in Pennsylvania to account through independent investigative and public service journalism, end quote. And to that end, Spotlight PA has a large and dedicated news staff, and we'll be talking to them regularly uh, here on the local edition from here on out. And tonight we're looking at a recent Spotlight PA article titled, These PA Birds Will Be Renamed as Watchers Reckon with Racism and Inclusion. It's about the American, Orntho- the American Ornithological Society, as groups in Pennsylvania and across the U.S. are reviewing avian names to decouple birds from racism and boost inclusion. The society expects to assess about 80 names next year. And here to tell us more about this story is a reporter who reported for Spotlight PA. It's Tanisha Thomas. Tanisha, welcome to the local edition. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So um, let's uh, let's start with this. So why does uh, Colleen Handel, the leader of the American Ornithological Society, want to change bird names? And what does she think this will do for people who like watching birds? Um, so the biggest thing, like she said in her statement that they posted on their website, was they wanted to have the names kind of go, not distract people from the birds and focus on the humans and more just focus more on the birds and who they are, and she also hopes this will create a little bit more inclusion and diversity within the bird-watching community as they try to grow that space for people, especially for people of color. And in her quote in the uh, statement, she says, we need a much more inclusive and engaging scientific process that focuses attention on the unique features and beauty of the birds themselves. Everyone who loves and cares about birds should be able to enjoy and study them freely, and birds need our our help more than ever. So she just wants to um, focus more on the birds. I, I heard about this a little bit in some national reporting when this 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 first came out as like a national story on, on NPR, and I thought that was interesting. And I guess I was assuming that this is because a lot of birds over the years got named uh, in part be, by by people that discovered them, and those would be very Eurocentric, you know, uh, names and, and naming customs. Is that in any way right? And is there more to it than that? Yeah, that's a little bit part of it is um, I believe their executive director had mentioned this too, how they wanted to deviate from the biases that came with like naming birds since a lot of them are named after historical figures and people more like affluent people who are able to go on these exhibitions to find them. But another added layer was just like 
the uh, with 2020, how that was called the quote racial reckoning, and the whole thing with the murder of George Floyd and the Central Park incident, where um, Christian Cooper was accused by a white woman of threatening her when he was telling her to leash her dog. Um, but there was also um, a bird group who had put out a petition. Um, who wanted to get the names changed because they looked more deeply into those people they were named after, and they were like, oh, some of them have problematic associations. Like, I think it's best we rename these birds because they have sinister undertones. And so that was, like, a big thing as well because they presented that petition to the American Ornithological Society um, to get their input and say, hey, what are you going to do about this? So that kind of like prompted the AOS to think about renaming the birds as well. So how are they, uh, how are they approaching this renaming process and, and, and what factors are they going to consider? Yeah. So they're going to um, assess about 80 names next year. And instead of doing a case by case basis and judging the birds on that, they're just going to review all birds with human names and they're going to form a committee who will uh, solicit input from both the public and experts from various scientific fields to get their feedback on that. And so some of these birds, they could be named after their features or their characteristics or their habitat. Like in a Audubon Society magazine article um, from last year, they had mentioned that maybe Cooper's hawk could be called ambush hawk or swift hawk. And, and what has the reaction been from the birdwatching community to these uh, proposed changes? Um, so from who I spoke to, um, a lot of the birders were very open-minded about it. Um, there were a couple where, like, they expressed disappointment, mainly about figures who probably have clean slates that didn't do anything wrong. They will have, like, their legacy erased, so they were kind of disappointed about that. But they agreed with the method of renaming just all the birds instead of by a name or by a case by case basis. Um, there was one uh, source who I spoke to where he initially disagreed with the method because he said that he felt like it was rewriting history and erasing figures. But after contemplating about it, he's like, you know, they made the right choice by wanting to just rename all of them instead of trying to hold this moral compass to, oh, how problematic is this person that we should rename them? So um, they were pretty open-minded about it. One of them, he said that, like, the name changing wouldn't really change anything because they're used to this kind of thing. So he said anything to go into the right direction, he was all for it. Um, but any backlash that might have came from it was mostly from, like, social media users or people like outside of the bird watching community who probably just saw this because it's kind of part of this movement of people trying to distance themselves from problematic associations, whether it's like, you know, the statue names or buildings. So that's like mostly where I saw the backlash, but within the community, mm -hmm. it seems like there's just this logical thought of, okay, like that's reasonable. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I was going to say something sarcastic about, you know, backlash on social media. Oh, no. But, yeah, I mean, that's where we're that's where we're always seeing that kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Um, there's this quote in here, um, and this is, uh, I guess, this is Judith Scarl, CEO and executive director of the Society, said the project could help reverse longstanding biases among birders, saying, quote, exclusionary naming conventions developed in the 1800s, clouded by racism and misogyny, don't work for us today. And that's just part of the quote there. 
Um, but that, that gets me thinking. And then also what you were saying about, you know, what happened in, in 2020. Is this in some ways because, uh, is, is addressing how birds were named in the past a way of, uh, talking about who's involved with bird watching today and making it inclusive to people that want to participate today? Um, yeah, I mean, it's if you want to make things more inclusive and diverse, you also have to think about your audience and who's trying to get involved with this. So if they're looking up these historical figures, I mean, one that I can, like, name, for example, for my article was uh, John James Audubon, who um, he was, like, a known naturalist and enslaver, and he has, like, a whole national chapter named after him and they had to reevaluate their name because they didn't want to exclude anyone they ultimately kept it but local chapters have like gone on their own to remove the name or change it and so that's just like one example of like thinking about the past trying to rectify it and make it to where this space is more welcoming to people because if you want to be inclusive you have to think about others opinions and not just one thing and so if it's predominantly white and you're trying to have more black voices or Asian voices, like it's important to assess them and ask them for their input. So this is just one step in the direction of listening to that, especially if they got this petition and they evaluated it and they're like, okay, we're going to take this into consideration. So that sounds like a step towards that. Yeah. And in that quote, like the actual phrase, like clouded by racism and misogyny and that what that brings to mind in like the naturalistic world and the sciences uh, all the examples of people of color and women making contributions to science and discovery and then totally getting shut out of the credit for it, too. And that's uh, something that we've seen happen in the past as well. Um, can you give there's an example in the article about uh, a, an example provided by Brian Wargo uh, regarding the reclassification of the Goshawk uh, into two species. How, how does this relate to this broader discussion of renaming birds in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so I had mentioned his quote because um, I know for me, like, I don't pay attention to anything bird-related. And so when I see something like this, it's going to seem new. But with him, he said, you know, this this change may not really impact our community at all because they're used to name changes all the time. And I had asked him about any, like, examples in the past where they've done this, and he mentioned this one with the goshawk and how they had this name for it, but then they realized the one in Europe had a little bit of a different DNA than the one in North America, and so they decided, oh, we should probably give these birds two different names to distinct from them um, because they're not the same. And so I just thought that was an interesting uh, distinction and example of how this is common practice for them, like them renaming these birds is nothing new and it's just something they go through all the time and for someone like me who doesn't pay attention to it how am i going to know when a bird's going to get renamed <laughs> yeah, really. so this is just like this just shows them like hey if you're really in tune to something you're going to notice it more versus the regular person who might come across this and go oh that's interesting and then move on so i just thought i wanted to give like my readers who probably aren't familiar with this subject some kind of idea of how this process goes. Cause I know myself, I was just curious of like, how the heck does these birds get a name? Cause I can only name like three of them. So right. I just wanted to include that in the story. 
Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad to know that that neither one of us are a bird expert here, uh, but we're, <laughs> we're still reporting on this. Uh, but but along those lines, is there anything in your research and your reporting that you found um, about? We're talking about how this story. This is kind of like a national story because they're doing this in different areas. But how does? Uh, uh, what does this mean for Pennsylvania? Um. So um, when I was learning about this, I thought there was just like Pennsylvania birds, but there's not. It's just like these birds migrate to different places. So there's birds that frequent here all the time. And so they may um, get affected. Uh, I had like a list at the end of the article where it mentions like a few of them, like uh, Cooper's hawk, or there was uh, Wilson's snipe, Wilson's warbler. Some of those birds, like they might face being renamed um, because they frequent or visit Pennsylvania a lot. So that's how they could be affected. Um, they might have a new name based on how they look or maybe a sound that they make. Um, it's just dependent on what the committee and those who get feedback do. Tanisha, I'm wondering, like, just to talk to you as a reporter for a moment, I was wondering how you how you came to this story and if there's anything that, that, that you learned from uh, researching this that you were surprised by. Um, so when I approached the story, I know I definitely just wanted to learn more about bird watching because I just know nothing about birds, um, even though my favorite bird is a cardinal. But other than that, I don't know anything. So I wanted to kind of approach it from someone who may not know who these organizations are or what the, who these birds are, why this matters. Um, but I also know just from like my research, I was just really surprised to see something like this be a hot topic. Um, just because, you know, something with like birds, you don't really think it'll just cause a lot of ruckus, but just reading um, about the different groups and how they've been fighting for even like before 2023, like I think I saw as far back as like 2020, uh, 2021, they were like talking about this and wanting to rename these birds and give them a different name. So it was just like interesting seeing that process and seeing these different, there's like different groups that have gone about um, wanting to address this and bring attention to it. I even saw, like, in my own hometown, because I'm from Columbus, Ohio, but um, I saw there's, like, a Black Birder Week. And I was like, that's so cool. Like, I've never heard of that. And so that was really interesting to just see how just in this, like, community with this hobby, they're just trying to push for more visibility and representation. So it kind of got me interested in just wanting to learn more about birds and the whole thing because um, it was more interesting than I thought. Like I didn't know what to expect from this story. And the whole time I just was like learning more. And that's exactly what I enjoy about reporting is like within it, I still want to learn something new. So this was like super cool to know more. Well, that's great. Well, I, I thank you so much for doing the research on this and then uh, uh, introducing these uh, topics and issues to us. And But I also thank you for being the first Spotlight PA reporter who we're talking to as we embark on this new partnership. So thank you so much, uh, Tanisha, for joining us. Oh, no, thank you so much. I love having that honor. No, this is super exciting. I appreciate you highlighting my story and giving me this opportunity to talk about it. That's great. So we've been talking to uh, Tanisha Thomas, and the name of the article 
is uh, these PA birds will be renamed as Watchers Reckon with Racism Inclusion. And this article is up now on our website. Just go to WJFFradio.org. There's also a little introductory article there uh, from Spotlight PA. So uh, thank you uh, again, Tanisha, and thank you, listener, for listening. We don't have a lot of time here. we got to move right into this next story. And uh, Wayne Brown is a clinical social worker, advocate with multifaceted commitment to mental health. He's pushing for a new law in New York state government to make it happen quickly. He wants New York to have more counselors. Patricio Robayo, talk to Wayne Brown about this law and why it's important for dealing with mental health crises in New York. Currently in New York State, there are different levels of mental health care available. Insurance companies obviously have the right to accept or decline any therapist for billable coverage. In my practice in Western New York, I have what is identified as a group practice, and I am permitted to bill for anyone under my practice who is clinically licensed as a therapist. And these insurance companies currently have the right to refuse licensed counselors who have not clinical licensing, but they need supervision in order to obtain the clinical licensing. What I'm arguing is that if group practices with fully licensed clinical therapists on staff, they should be able to provide that supervision to lesser therapists so that way they can uh, get up to full clinical licensure. Where this would be impactful in an area like the Catskills is if I live in Liberty, I wouldn't have to drive to Middletown in order to see a licensed therapist if there is someone locally who has a clinical license and someone else who has a master's license, the master's license worker could easily work under the clinically licensed worker. And then instead of having one therapist, you could have two or three in the community and insurance would be required to offer parity and billing purposes between the large agency in Middletown and uh, smaller community workers in Liberty. You basically gave a really good example why how this can contribute to the mental health care crisis in New York State, but can you go into that? How is this current situation that we have now contributing to the mental health crisis? There's a lack of access. Prior to my being in private practice, I did work in one of the larger agencies. And in the larger agencies, it's community-based health care. What happens is if one of us were to call and ask for a therapy session, we would be legally required to be seen for first appointment within 24 to 48 hours. If I called right now, likely I would get a walk-in appointment for either today or tomorrow, and I'd be seen by the therapist, and we'd go through the first part of the paperwork, and they would assess as to what risk level I am. And unless I was highest risk, like in need of hospitalization, 
I'm probably not being seen for a second appointment until hopefully before Christmas time. And that's best case scenario. By changing the law and making sure that smaller practices can employ school counselors and employ community activists who just want to work part-time, that would increase the number of counselors available in a community, which in turn would decrease the burden to these community health care agencies where therapists might have caseloads of 130, 150 plus people. We talk about mental health a lot during the, during the pandemic, and I know there was issues before the pandemic. How do you think the pandemic sort of impacted mental health in areas like the Catskills where compared to places like, say, New York City, where more mental health services are available? Do you think the pandemic sort of made things worse or has it made things worse in mental health? Well, and it's not just having transportation. If you have transportation and you don't have gas money, you don't actually have transportation. You need to be able to maintain relatively full-time employment, which means you're limited in access to therapy because therapists after work and after school hours, those slots go first. If you actually have a job that enables you to have the gas money to move your car, then you don't have the same access to appointments by default. I don't believe... I don't believe that the pandemic created the mental health crisis. I think the pandemic revealed it. Mm. And that's, it's become more socially acceptable for people to say, I have a therapist. It's become more of a thing where, especially the Generation X generation, and to a lesser degree, Generation Y, where it was taboo when we were younger to say, I go to a specialist for my mental health. Now it's just one of those things where people will openly talk about, when I saw my therapist, they recommended A, B, and C. It's not something that we have to apologize for or couch anymore. So. If something good came from the pandemic, it normalized strong mental health care and it normalized the idea that you can be okay and not feel okay. I'm just about the pandemic hasn't made things worse, but you said, but has revealed a lot of uh, issues. Well, websites popping up like BetterHelp and other online therapists, has that made things some better? to have folks have access to mental health services instead of like driving somewhere, they have access to their phone or, or some kind of Zoom option there to speak to a therapist? Um, I, I don't want to talk ill of those online services. I think that it's good that they do exist. Mm -hmm. I think it offers a perception of availability more than actuality of availability because if someone does, is paying for or receiving health care through their uh, employer, those larger online services don't work with health insurance. They have like membership programs. Right. 
So you can pay for access this amount of times per month or this amount of times per month. And the way they get therapists on board is they pay a very large signing bonus for once you see your first client. And then after that, you're getting paid probably 20 to $25 an hour for offering counseling services. And that is not on par with what most private practices and some clinics are offering. So what ends up happening is someone's paying 80 to $100 a month for three to four different therapists per month, which, again, I'm glad they're talking to someone. I think that people benefit from being able to see a clinician in person. I think that people benefit from being able to establish a relationship with one person that they can trust and feel is vested in them. And so, you know, those larger services offer offer a service that's needed. I think we can do better. Let's go back to this bill. Where is the current status of the bill? Where is it? Whose desk is it? Is it on? Is it up for a vote soon or? It's in its infancy. It's in its infantile infancy, to be honest with you, because I have talked with I've talked with the legislative directors for a senator as well as two different assembly people, and all three offices absolutely agree that this is something that would be a very easy change, and it is something that would really be completely invisible to the average New Yorker as far as structural law changes. If people go to that page, change.org slash mental health care equity, they can see the case laid out in far more detail than you and I have the ability to. I think a lot of your listeners would agree that what we've been talking about is complex and difficult to understand. That's why I am asking people to seek out this petition and read it. And if they see that, you know what, I think that even if this doesn't apply to me, my neighbor would benefit from it, my aunt would benefit from it, my child would benefit from it, from greater access to mental health care. They can sign it, and there's a link there in order to gain a form letter that they can personalize to send on to their legislator to say, you know what, I think that greater health care access in New York State does make sense to me. And I teach at university, and I have several really great up-and-coming social workers who want to be school therapists, and the last thing I would want to do is to take them out of a school. But if they're looking at how much they're going to earn in a school versus how much they're going to earn in a clinic or an agency moving towards something else, it becomes a it becomes an issue and I hate the idea that great therapists 
are not going to be able to serve their school community, are not going to be able to serve their activist community, or that they're forced into a choice between doing what they're passionate about and earning enough to pay a mortgage. It breaks my heart how many people who are school counselors or community activists that do 40, 50, 60 hours a week of work and then have to do gig work just to meet their monthly bills. And this bill, if this were to be enacted, would be invisible to 99% of New York State. It would only be visible to people who are seeking to provide or seeking to receive positive mental health care. Wayne, before we go, is there anything else we have not touched on do you want our listeners to know about? I think the big thing is, again, I want I would ask them to go to change.org slash mental health care equity. In that page, there is a link to my website if they're looking to learn more. This is really uh, what we're seeking to provide is an opportunity for all mental health care providers to work under the same level of fairness. But I don't, I don't have the money for lobbyists, so I'm going to the people and I'm asking for people power. I'm asking for people to mobilize and prove to New York State Legislature that they do care about availability of mental health care. This isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. This isn't a right or a left issue. This is a right or a wrong issue. We're talking to Wayne Brown, a licensed clinical social worker specializing in trauma work, family therapy, and LGBT work, sociality, and family engagement. Talking about the New York legislature bill that will immediately increase access to mental health counselors throughout the state. Thank you so much for talking to us, Wayne, and telling us about this uh, very important bill. Thank you for having me. We hope to have you back on soon. Thank you. Anytime. Well, thank you, Patricio, for that report. Thank you to Spotlight PA for being our new partner. Check out the article at wjffradio.org. And thank you for listening to the local edition. I've been your host, Jason Dole. I'll be back again tomorrow evening. We'll do it all over again. Do keep on listening on air, online at wjffradio.org, or on your smartphone or smart device. Mr. Kusar, Grayson Music Emporium is coming up at 7. Before that, we've got the daily. This is Radio Catskill. Thank you so much.